verses 9 through 16. This is part number three and the last sermon on this section. John 15, 9 through 16. Let me remind you of the text, and I'll remind you a little bit about the first two points, or first two messages we preach, and then we'll focus our remaining time on the two verses we have not yet covered. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, or no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I set you apart, or I appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Not it may be given to you, but He may give it to you, emphasizing the giver more than the gift. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you'll use it for the edification and profitability of your saints. And Lord, for those who are outside of Christ, that they would see the beauty, the glory, and the wonder of Christ. They would turn from their sin, and by faith, they would believe upon Christ this day and forevermore. In Christ's name I pray, amen. I realize it's been a while and I've been out of town and these types of things, so I need to remind you, I don't like to do this necessarily, but I need to to catch us up to date with where we are. But in this passage about uh, abiding, this obedience of love, let me remind you of this introductory-wise. You don't have to turn there in your Bibles just to remind you. You'll know it when you hear it. But John, who obviously wrote this gospel, also wrote First John. And you will find a very similar layout in 1 John if you read those five chapters. Here's what you'll find. These are just a couple of highlights you would find in 1 John. You will find fellowship between us and the Father and the Son. You'll find that. You'll find obedience. You'll find brotherly love. You will find practicing righteousness you will find the love of God and our love of Him, His love of us, our love of Him, came about because He first loved us. You will also find keeping commandments, and you will find that keeping commandments is not a burden, but rather it is a delight. And you will also find this issue of faith. All of those things you will find in John 15, verses 1 through 16. John learned well from the lips of Jesus. Uh, he understood, and all these things are put together in him by the Holy Spirit, 
and they are for our edification. And we'll get to it. The main point of this message, the final message this morning, is this issue of joy. Joy. It's an issue, and it's here, and it tells us how we can abide and experience this joy. First John does a very similar thing, especially in verse 4 of 1 John. I've written these things to you so that your joy may be full or may be complete. And Jesus is going to say the same thing here in John 15, 11. He said, I've spoken these things to you. This is why I've said what I've said, that my joy, so think about the joy that Jesus possessed, that my joy may be in you. And then he adds this line to that as well, and that your joy may be full, complete, perfect. It's the same Greek word. You could translate any one of those three ways, full, complete, or perfect. That's the desire he wants you to experience as a result of what he has said, fullness of joy. I wonder if there'd be anybody in the room this morning that's not experiencing joy to the fullness. And so we have the words of Christ that have that very intent that you would. We'll get there momentarily. Let me remind you of this text briefly. Number one, we talked, I preached upon divine love. Personally, I have not gotten over this yet, but just as the Father loved the Son, that's how the Son loves you. However we conclude the Father loving the Son, that's the way He has loved us. And in this text, we had three comparisons Number one comparison was, well, how does the Father love the Son? The second comparison gave us the purpose of the comparison. What was the purpose? That we are to love one another. Don't go to sleep yet. I just started. We're to love one another as. That's the comparative. How am I supposed to love you? How are you supposed to love me? How are we supposed to love each other? We're we're supposed to love just like Jesus loved us. So however Jesus loves me, that's the way love is to exist in the church of the living God. This is divine love where we set ourselves aside and put others before ourselves. So divine love. The second point, which was much longer, I remind you, was verses 9 and 10 13 and 14, and verse 16. And this was this issue of abiding. Abide in His love. Remain, stay. And I reminded you of this issue about abiding. Whenever you rebel, whenever you sin, whenever you go outside of the will of God, just notice there's a direct connection to joy. Whenever you're disobedient to God, rebel away from God, there's an immediate effect upon your joy. Whether you have joy or not, whether it's full or whether it's empty, there is a connection with your heart condition. And I reminded you of Psalm 51, and I said, look at David before he sinned, look at David after he sinned, look at David as he repents. Look at David as he confesses and find yourself in verse 12 when his sanity and his mind's right and now he's where he needs to be through repentance and he says that great statement, restore me, which means I've fallen out of fellowship, 
restore me to what? To the joy. I want that joy that I had previously, I want to have it back. Restore me to thy joy, the joy of thy salvation. I want to experience daily what it means to walk in joy. That's what I want to experience. And again, let me note this. This has an applicable source to every venue of life, to every age, to every circumstance, to every economic disaster, to every pandemic, to everything that happens in this world, this text is still true that we can have fullness of joy. But you cannot have it if you're living in sin, rebellion, disobedience. So check your joy and then examine your heart. So that was comparison one, the purpose of comparison. And then the third comparison we saw, he says, is this one is about obedience. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Uh, so I'm supposed to analyze Jesus' obedience, and I'm supposed to apply that to my life as how I'm to live out Christianity. How did Christ obey? That's the way I'm supposed to obey. What did Christ do? That's what I'm supposed to do. To mirror image here and to find delight in this obedience. And as we continue to look at abiding, we also learned about a greater love. Greater love has no man than this. And lay down his life for his friends. We saw that there in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this than lay down his life for his friends. I noted this for you. Let me remind you, and you mentioned it, uh, Kevin mentioned it in their outreach last night, but confession of divine love that does not prove itself in brotherly love. I love God, but I have no love for the church. You're a liar. I I love God, but I don't think church, membership, devotion to other people in the body of Christ really matters at all. I'm just going to kind of hang out because I love Jesus, but I don't have to really get dirty and sacrifice for you because you really don't matter. You, friend, are lying and you don't love God. Because if you love God, you're by necessity going to love the church. There's something within. The Spirit of God does it. And all of a sudden, all these weird, wacko people that gather in this building, all of a sudden, I start caring about you. Why? I didn't care about you before. Divine love and abiding in love causes me to love the church. If I have no love for the church, how can I say I have any love for God? You can read that in 1 John as well. You say you love God, whom you cannot see, but you don't love your brother who you do see, then you are a liar. That's what 1 John would say. Now, also, as we look through this abiding in the love of God, we also saw the section on verse 16 about him choosing us. He's setting his love upon us. We looked at various texts about this choosing, God's love and his calling. He called us by name. He loves us freely. He shows us his love for us while we were sinners. He died for us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. We love because he first loved us. And then this love relationship, abiding in this love, him calling us, setting his love upon us, he did that in order to set us apart for a purpose. 
And I know we talked about all these fruits in 1 through 8, but then we have this specific fruit in verse 16, the fruit of evangelism, the fruit of winning souls, the fruit of capturing souls, if you will. That's one of the fruits that we produce is that we take the gospel to others that they may see Christ. And so he appointed or ordained, as King James says, for us to be a part of this fruit-bearing ministry. Now, we also, as we look through all of that, we now come to verses 11 and 15. I preached and skipped these verses on purpose, and now we come to verse 11 and verse 15. So let's look at these this morning. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that for my purpose, here's the purpose, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, what exactly has he spoken to us? Take your time. Believe God's word is the very word of God. Now, In these 16 verses, what has he said to us? Well, let me give you a very short list. It's very clear from verses 1 through 8. He's talked about he is the vine. I've told you I'm the vine. Now, every one of these, he's saying he spoke in order that you would have fullness of joy. We're going to put these together. Jesus says clearly, unquestionably, I am the vine. Implications behind that. Every amount of life-giving source that you need to live this life and to produce fruit for the glory of God is found in this vine. There's no other vine. There is only one vine, and it is Christ. Every amount of fruit bearing that would flow through your body into this world of spiritual fruit must come from this one source, the vine. If you're not connected to the vine, you cannot live in joy. If you're not connected to the vine, you cannot produce lasting fruit. It won't work. You can do good works, and you can go join the Red Cross, and you can ring the ding-a-ling bell in front of the store at Christmas time, but you can't produce good fruit unless you're tied to the vine. Newsflash, the vine is very much attached to the church. He's not attached to some other institution out there. He's not set his love on some other institution. And he certainly did not bleed and die for the Rotary Club or any other club. The vine is very central in priority to his body. And his body is the church. And the body is joined to the head. And the head is the authority over the body. And the body produces fruit. And in this connection of vine and body, there's fruit bearing that has joy as an ongoing reality. You show me a man that don't have joy, I'll show you a man that has no interest in the church. Branches. Spoke these things that you would have joy. Branches. Remind me of the necessity of connection to the vine. Because if I'm not connected to the vine, I know what happens. I wither. I've been around long enough to know that if you go out there and you snip one of those branches off one of those crepe myrtles, that it'll die. You can take it when it's in full bloom and it looks beautiful and all the colors are lit up around the road and you cut one branch off, that thing is going to fade fast. 
So I'm reminded, if I'm going to have joy as a branch, there must remain an ongoing connection with the vine. Thirdly, there must be fruit, two through five. That's the whole purpose of the vine and the branches. The whole illustration is that the Father wants to see fruit production. It's the theme of the gospel, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Christian branches produce fruit because that's what we're created to do. We are a fruit-bearing people, and we bear fruit. Why? For the glory of our God. Again, there's no age here. There's no IQ here. There's no qualifications here of what you was born here, you was born there, this side of the tracks, that side of the tracks. None of this matters. Every branch that is in the vine produces fruit. If you don't have fruit being produced, you cannot understand joy. Where's the fruit? Out of all the ten fruits we listed and the fruit of evangelism, what fruit is being produced by your individual life? And then we take all these individual lives that produce fruit and we bring them together collectively in the place called the church and we say, look at all the fruit. Right? That's what a church is, a fruit-bearing community. You say, well, what fruit is by the word but the Baptist? What, what, what fruit are they producing? I can tell you about some fruit in Pachote, Mexico. I can tell you about some fruit in Honduras. I can tell you about some fruit in Chiapas. I can tell you about some fruit in this community. Last night as the gospel went out, I can tell you about some fruit of counseling. I can tell you about some fruit of loving one another. I can tell you about some fruit of people sacrificing to make sure somebody else is taken care of. I can tell you about the fruit of somebody that's going to be eaten this week because the church is going to make sure they have food. I can tell you about On and on we can go. But the church collectively is bearing a lot of fruit because individual Christians are bearing fruit and we're one family together under one head. So he's saying these things I've spoken. You say, if you're in a church that's not bearing fruit, there's no joy there. There's no joy. There's politics and there's dissension and there's bitterness, but there's not joy. And then he also spoke to them about a warning. And that warning is, if you don't bear fruit, you will be cut off. You will wither and you will be thrown into the fire. We live in an abiding awareness of that warning. And then also, he spoke to them about relationship, father and son, and the relationship of us and the son. And he said, all of these things work together, and they prove your discipleship. They prove your discipleship. That's verse 8. It proves that you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Now, you think about all of those things, abiding, keeping, loving, friendship, and fruit-bearing are all connected intricately to this issue of joy. I'm not trying to be confusing, so let me go back through it again. Every one of these things are contingent upon you experiencing joy in the present. Please grab this. Whether you believe it or not, at least grab it and consider it. If you're a person who does not abide in an ongoing relationship with Christ, abide, live in, remain in, you can't experience joy. If you're a person who refuses to keep the commandments of God, you can't live in joy. If you're a person who has no love for God, which is evidence for your lack of love for your brother and your sister in Christ, you can't experience joy. If you have no friendship between you and the Son, you can have no joy. If there's no fruit bearing going on in your life, no wonder you have no joy because joy is produced by the Spirit of God and the joy that He produces, He produces in people who love Christ. 
think this thing through. These are all connected. Now, here's a Greek word I dearly love from John chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but uh, it's also uh, the word that is found in Hebrews chapter 12. Let me show you this word in Hebrews chapter 12. In John 1, it's grace. In the place of grace is the way I translate it. Here in Hebrews, it's a verse that some of you know well, and let me remind you of this verse. Hebrews 12, 2, because it's contingent upon joy, and I want you to understand joy this morning. He says in Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, that's what we're doing here this morning. We're looking to him to find out this issue of joy. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Amen. We all agree? It's the source, the perfecter. Any amount of faith, whatever our faith is, it was established by him and perfected by him. Now, the ESV and other translations say, who for the joy. The Greek word I want to pull attention to is the word for. It's the Greek word anti. And so I translate here, in the place of it's a good translation. Christ in the place of joy that was set before him. Why am I saying that and why does it matter? Because here's Christ in heaven in the presence of his Father God. God the Father is his joy. The Father is the joy of of Christ. In the place of this personal joy of being in the presence of the Father, he sets that aside, if you will, and what does he put in its place? Endurance. Endurance. Look at the text. For in the place of joy that was set before him, he places endurance to the cross. So I get a picture of Christ before his Father in fullness of joy And he sets this aside, and he takes up on this weight of living in a fallen, depraved world, going through everything he went through, all the way up to this cross event where he makes the propitiation for our sins and absorbs the wrath of his Father, and he goes through all of that. And I note to you that even in going through all of that, he never lost his joy, His joy remained the same through it all because his joy is not a feeling, it's not an emotion, and he didn't get it from Dr. Phil, and he certainly didn't get it from Oprah. This joy that he has is a person, his father, and his joy remains in suffering, his joy remains in endurance. Why? Because he knows he's returning to the joy he once had before he came into the world. Now, don't misunderstand my application because I'm not making the illustration in equality with what I've just told you. I'm just trying to help you to grasp. So don't compare them too closely, but just listen to get the gist. If I say to you that my joy is my wife, and to some degree that's certainly true, not to the degree of Christianity, but let's say my wife is my joy, and I set that joy aside to endure a mission trip. Okay? Don't overanalyze it, but I go to Honduras, and I have all these things in Honduras that I didn't particularly like. I don't like sand. 
I don't like their food. I don't like humidity. I don't like non-air conditioned rooms. I don't like hard beds. And I don't like bugs crawling around on the floor. There's a lot of things I don't like about Honduras, okay? And I don't like eating in a plastic chair on dirt while there's mangy dogs sniffing my feet while I'm trying to eat. I don't like none of that. But in the midst of that, I didn't lose the joy I have for my wife. I'll go through this for a purpose, but one day I'll be restored to the joy of this relationship. Are you with me? This is what Christ is saying on a whole nother level. It's this joy he set aside with his Father to endure this life to be a substitute upon the cross, never losing his joy because his joy is a person, knowing that the day would come after his resurrection, he would ascend back to heaven, be seated at the right-hand throne of his Father, and be restored into the fullness of that joy. And you understand this morning that as a Christian, you should have ongoing, abiding joy every day of your life in the present. Why? Look, Christ is your joy. Please listen, church. If you don't grasp Christ to be your joy, you'll grow old and bitter and grappy and cantankerous, and you'll think this whole world has handed you a raw deal, and it's all going against you, and you'll say stuff like this. It's just not fair. Dude, you're looking at it wrong. The world is not your joy. Money is not your joy. Things are not your joy. Christ is your joy. Pandemics can't take that away. Cancer can't take that away. COPD can't take that away. Nothing can rob you of the reality of joy because it's a person. And so we endure in a fallen world under the depravity of a society that's on its way to hell because I know one day I will see him face to face and it will all make sense. One day we will be restored to the joy of being in the presence of Christ. We're going somewhere. We have a reason for existence We're doing what we're doing because we have a purpose. Look, again, if you have any idea what it means to love a person, if you're separated from them long enough, your heart grows so full. You just, everything, you just want to be with them. It's what happens. That's why texts say something like, eagerly waiting the day of his coming. The longer we go, the more I just want to go home. Why? Because He is my joy. Learn that from Christ. We look to Him to learn such things. Now, fullness. I want to say a word about fullness because it's important, but basic understanding of this word is to bring to maximum capacity. You can't have any greater joy than what you find in Christ. You say, Jesus doesn't give me joy. You're not converted. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Because all joy is found in him. He's the well where joy comes from. Additionally, this word, because of the tense that it's used in, shows that a process started and it's being brought to completion. 
It's being brought to a desired end. That which has begun will be completed someday. Let me give you to you in the words of the apostles. In John 145, the disciples' joy was, remember John 145 way back at the beginning, you know what their joy was? We have found him. Remember? We found him. All of a sudden, everything makes sense. The light bulb came on. <laughs> we found him. Actually, he found them, but no, who, who cares about wording here? The joy was derived in that they understood who Christ was. And then, like unto Christ, and the fullness of joy was like unto Jesus when he said, Into your hands I commit my spirit. But watch these disciples. Watch this about John the Baptist. Turn, if you will, to John. <laughs> Their initial joy was when they said, we have found him. But think about John at the end of his life. John the Baptist, not John the Apostle. And listen to what John says in John three twenty nine. What a blessed word. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friends of the bridegroom who stand and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It's now full. I've laid my eyes upon Christ. Oh, that you'll experience that in your life daily and climatically on the last day. Now lastly, look at verse 15 very briefly. In verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves for the servant or the slave does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, I remind you of this friendship. Who are Jesus' friends? Calls them friends. He didn't call everybody friends, but he called them friends. So in our text, who are his friends? Those who obey him. Those who do what he commands. Jesus calls them friends who does what he says. In other words, in this friendship, Christ always remains the authority. Think about it. What type of friend continues to live in disobedience, to rebel, to reject the words of the one in authority? That relationship will not end well. And do note, nowhere in the Bible do men call Jesus his friend. Only a top-down model is allowed in Scripture. Abraham is called the friend of God. Moses is called the friend of God. Lazarus was called the friend of Christ. But no one in Scripture called God his friend. Why? Example is this. Anyone to call God friend is to be a name dropper and a self-elevator. It's what we do. We say we're friends of somebody in importance to make ourselves look good. That's not how it works in Christianity. The one on top brings himself down to call the pauper his friend. This is a matter of condescension, not a matter of self-elevation. The key difference between slaves and friends in your earthly employments, or if you want to use the term master and slaves, employer-employee, the boss has no necessity to explain why they tell their employees what to do. 
Bosses just tell you to do it. And they're not bound to give you any explanation. You say, this don't make any sense. I don't care. You work for me, you do what I say, or you get fired. It's just kind of the way it works. They don't have to explain. They don't care to explain. But with friends, it's different. There's only one distinguishing mark about this friendship in this text. Only one. What is the distinguishing mark about Jesus calling you his friend? The distinguishing mark is disclosure. He tells you things and reveals things to you because you are his friend. Think about friendship, one that is attached to you by affection, communication, relationship, or trust. Disclosure. Think about the parables. Think about the sower went out into the field to sow. Think about the end of the parable, and nobody understands. And he takes this little group over here to the side, and he says, let me explain to you what I was talking about. This is what the seed is. This is what the soil is. And he gives this explanation. Why? Because they're his friends. He reveals to them the deep, hidden things of God. Whatever God has spoken to him, he takes and discloses it to them in private in this intimate, loving relationship. The church, understand, this is how it works. If Christ has made you his friend, every day when you wake up and you open this book and you read in this book, Every morning, every evening, whenever you read in this book, he discloses to you great and marvelous things. He reveals, you say, you, you read something and you're like, man, I can't wait to tell somebody this. this is, we read Proverbs 10 in prayer meeting this morning. I was like, I think I'd preach every verse in the whole ch- The command to love one another. I know I'm done. I know I'm supposed to be through. I know we're Americans and we got to eat. Ask your, be honest for once in your life. Be honest right now today. Exactly how would you explain how you love the body of Christ? Explain it. In what way have you demonstrated love to anybody? How did you do it? What'd you give up? What'd you sacrifice? What'd you bleed for? How did you invest in someone else? You come week after week after week after week and you've not done anything but suck things out of the church. When will you give something? Love gives. It's biblical. I preach on it forever. Love sacrifices. Love dies. Love puts other people first. And all you're doing, receive, receive. Christianity is not spongy. It's not. Christianity pours out and pours out and pours out. And the Spirit of God keeps feeling. Why does the fire keep burning? Because the Spirit of God keeps pouring oil on it. Have no joy because you have no love. Those who are Jesus' friends will continually have the truth of God disclosed to them. As the words of Jesus are discovered, received, and obeyed, the Christian will experience joy. Not emotional, but the joy of being in a right relation with Christ. And he will move into the fulfillment of that joy, which will be in the presence of Christ. In the process of this journey that we are on, we'll make the gospel known to people along the way. 
and we'll do, endure whatever comes along for the glory of Christ. As Brother Kevin comes to lead us in a closing hymn, let us pray this morning. Father, I thank you, Lord, who struggle, each one of us in some regard, with joy, contentment, satisfaction. All of these things seem to elude and escape us so many days. Lord, we go through hard things. We lose loved ones. It diagnosed with cancer. We have a pandemic that affects the whole world. Wars and rumors of wars, pestilence, earthquakes, rebellious children, difficult marriages, money issues, job issues. All of these things, Lord, we go through all of this stuff and Lord, we get so caught up in it all. Lord, we look like death walking around sometimes. Lord, recalibrate us today. Help us to look where we're supposed to look. Help us to love what we're supposed to love. Help us to see the value of being in Christ and having Him to be our joy. And Lord, I know there's people in this room yet to repent, yet to believe, yet to be baptized. Lord, that they would see every ounce of joy they've ever wanted, every ounce of joy they've ever longed for, is only in Christ. And until they will believe Him, they will never experience joy. Oh, that we would look to Christ and Christ alone this day. We pray this by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.